Welcome to the Liberal Europe Podcast, European Liberal Forum Project. I'm your host, Ricard Silvestre, and today I'll be speaking with Jan Penfrat. Jan is the Senior Policy Advisor at European Digital Rights Network, or EDRI, and we're going to be discussing the EU Digital Services Act. And after our conversation, I'll be back to tell you about some of the events organized by ELF for this end of March and beginning of April. But before I bring you Jan Penfrat, I have to apologize for the poor quality of the sound from Jan's site on this podcast. I strive to have as best as quality to bring you these conversations, but sometimes things are a little bit out of our control. Still, for the quality of the conversation and for the contribution of Jan, we decided to bring it up to you anyway. So, with no further ado, I bring you Jan Penfrat. I'm here with Jan Penfrat. Jan, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's great to have you here. And for a very important conversation, I first saw Jan talking about this on the series of webinars from the European Liberal Forum. And we're going to talk about what is called the Digital Services Act, because I asked Jan to come to the podcast so that we can talk about what are some of these solutions proposed by the European Commission and how can that affect some of the liberties we so know. So um, hopefully wait to keep having online, but sometimes they look like they go away very quickly. So let's start with that, Jan. One of the things in the Digital Services Act, it's this tendency to more and more ask for contents to be removed very quickly so that there are, no, there are no liability concerns for the companies, so that we don't have to change what is called the safe harbor laws. But Edri uh, is very clear on this one, which is the solution cannot be delete first and think later. So let's start with that. Tell us a little bit what is that and why is that a concern? Yeah, um, thank you. That, that's a really important question. It's um, moderating online content is is a messy field, and it's there are no simple solutions um, to um, to work to work with that. Um, but that doesn't mean that there aren't solutions um, around. Uh, now, what we often see is that um, that we realize that that the, the platforms who host our public debates today, you know, social media platforms such as Facebook or video content platforms such as YouTube or Twitter, um, as well. Uh, they uh, they have um, they have acquired an enormous uh, uh, power around the speech of everybody on the globe. Really, I mean, you know, Facebook with all its products has about three point five billion users now. I think that's the latest number, if I'm not mistaken. And and so they they basically cater to to a large chunk of the global population and and their public debate. And because these platforms have so much power. Um, so the intuitive reaction is, well, if something's going wrong on their platform, they, you know, they, sh they should be responsible. Let's kind of pressure them with everything we we've got um, to to kind of make them react and you know somehow you know govern that space that that is theirs. Um, and so content removal is something uh, you know when it comes to especially when it comes to illegal content, but sometimes you know you hear demands about content removal. Uh, mandated content removal for for legal content as well, if that's considered to be uh, objectionable content, um, that is kind of one of the first intuitive steps that people want to take. 
Um, but our thinking is that, that this really is a, is a risky direction uh, to take because you very quickly land in a, in a space where, where governments basically make laws for, uh, that, that create incentives for platforms to take down as much content as they can. Because the incentive uh, on the platform side is not to have a healthy public debate. Uh, their incentive is just to have users engage on the platform. That's all, no matter how they engage. They just want to have engagement. Um, and, and that means people sticking to the screens, people clicking as often as in liking and sharing and so on. So this is what they want to maximize towards. Um, and as long as there is this discrepancy of incentives and goals, um, I don't think that with this kind of, of uh, legislative pushing, um, you know, with things like, like intermediary liability, for example, that we're going to get anywhere near where we want to be. I think the actual path we, we, should, we should be thinking about is how to reduce the enormous power that these big companies hold over our public debates uh, today. That's a great point. Let's stay here for a little more, which is the user engagement. It's still with the delete first and think later kind of approach. I think it's interesting that you presented that, which is the platforms want people to be uh, on the platform. And one thing we know is that the more controversy is generated by one particular piece of content, the more people will go there and the more people click. So I think there's also a competition between, you know, removing this kind of contents because companies don't want to be liable for it. But the, on, on the other hand, we don't want to sterilize the environment too much. Uh, do you have an opinion on this? Um, yeah, I think your question is really head on, like head on and looks, goes straight to the heart of, of, of the problem that, that I see with, uh, with the business models that, that many of the big platforms have. Um, but before we go into that, maybe just a quick note on, on that delete first, think later. Um, which I think is a, is a great way of describing um, what the Commission has tried when they proposed the Digital Services Act, um, because there is a really there is a really good bit in the DSA, and then there is this very problematic bit that the Commission has proposed. I still can't get my head around why they did this, because I always had the impression that they understand really well what these problems, you know, how this works, and I don't know how this has how this has gotten into the final text. But so the good bit is that the DSA upholds the general limited liability rules that, um, uh, that were established by the e-commerce directive 20 years ago, which basically say a platform is only liable for user-generated content that is potentially illegal if the platform knows about that content. And the, content, the platform cannot be forced by law to, to basically scan every single piece of content and actively look uh, in phishing campaigns, look for potentially illegal content, um, because that basically would totally undermine uh, you know uh, the, the 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 protection of people's posts and the protection of people's private conversations as well on these platforms. Um, so so this is the good bit, right? But then there is this tiny little rule that the commission has injected into what they call the notice and action system. Um, and the notice and action system basically is built to to say, if you are a, a platform and you allow people to upload content, you need to have a notification system where users can flag if they find content that they think is, you know, could be illegal. And they should, they, can, they should be able to flag this to the platform. And then the platform needs to take action by, you know, on, on that content and you know, verify whether the, whether the flagging is justified and whether the content is potentially illegal. Now, what the commission has done is that they said, as soon as a platform receives such a notification, that 
automatically triggers the liability for that company, for that particular piece yes. of content. Now, what this does is it sounds like, oh, great, we put a lot of pressure on the platform to act, right? Sounds great. No, but in, in reality, what it does is that the company as a, you know, as a commercial entity has no interest in running into these kind of liability, legal liability risks, right? It's a huge liability risk. Um, whereas it's easy to kind of circumvent that liability risk by simply deleting the piece of content. But what platforms are very likely going to do in many cases when they receive a notification, no matter how bollocks this, this notification may be, um, they just delete the content just in case. So that way they, they, re they remove the liability risk from the, from the equation. And I, I call this delete first, think later, because then they can just sit and say, well, if the, if the poster of that content uh, later objects, well, that's okay. We can just reinstate the content. Sorry, we made a mistake. Stuff happens. Um, no harm done. Um, and, but in, you know, we know that most of the posters, they won't object, right? Most people won't go through the hassle for a, for a tweet or for a Facebook post than to, you know, to get into a, into a quarrel with, with the online platform. So in most cases, we'll see deletion simply because someone has black content, no matter what. And then the this, this stuff mostly stays down. So, a, you know, a large amount of over-removal is, is likely going to be the result. And I think this is a big, a big issue here. Takes, takes us in so many directions because one of them, from one side, we have the platforms and all the problems that you just mentioned. But on the other hand, we also have the people, the culture, the society, and, and the possibility of someone sees a piece of content online and says, I don't like that and I'm going to flag it. And from then on, all that mechanism that you just well described goes into action. And then it has a freezing effect on other people because I don't want to get into trouble because someone didn't like my opinion. Well, that is the idea of having opinions. That is the idea of having debate. So um, let's, let's stay in here, but now talk a, li a little bit about something that also uh, a lot of people have a lot of interest, which is the functioning of algorithms, decision-making, human review of all this process. The other thing that can happen is that for platforms exactly to not have this kind of problems that you just described, it's just to automate, automatize everything. Let the computers take, take over. We don't need, you know, the human sensitivity and the human nuance associated. We'll just block it and that's it. What were the steps that the European Commission did on this particular one? Um, so the Commission has proposed that if a company um, uses algorithms, um, then you know, in these algorithms should be as transparent as you know as possible. There's there's some transparency rules around algorithms, um, which you know, in in my opinion, makes sense. Um, so I think you know, making algorithms transparent uh, transparent is um, is uh, is an important uh, is an important first step. Um, it's also, you know, I think to be fair to the platforms, it's it's understandable that they use um, automated means to um, to to try to find and and flag and potentially remove uh, a content that they think goes against either the law um, or against their internal kind of set of rules. So in itself, um, that is, this isn't necessarily a bad thing. I think it would be it would be uh, unrealistic to demand that the only measure that a platform takes against you know potentially illegal content. Um, a platform of the size of Facebook, for example, that the only measure is human review. I, I don't think that realistically can work anymore. That's, the platforms are just too big. There's too much content out there. Um, but that doesn't mean that, um, A, the algorithmic decisions shouldn't be even more transparent. And that doesn't mean 
that the human review cannot be improved. So at the moment, Facebook always, for example, and I use Facebook because I think Facebook is the one with the most kind of human review debate around it, um, and also the platform with the most users. And and so Facebook always kind of you know says publicly, oh, we have we have employed that many uh, that many uh, human reviewers, and you know see how great we are. I know that Facebook always kind of mocks Twitter a little bit because they say we have we spent more money on 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 content review that Twitter has in their annual revenue, um, and so. You know, that's kind of the, the pride that they put into their human review. While in reality, these numbers doesn't mean anything because we have no comparison about how many human reviewers are actually needed mm-hmm. to moderate 3.5 3. billion people. Um, and it also doesn't say anything about the quality of the human review. So what we hear from people who have worked as human reviewers yes. in Facebook or in, in, co- in companies that were hired by Facebook to do this work um, is that they say it's, it's horrendous yes. work conditions. It's very low pay. Um, they are not trained to do this kind of stuff. Um, they sit there and they get like 20 seconds or so per decision. Um, and they do that the whole day. It's just click, click, click. And, and with no, you know, real discussion around it or kind of um, so it's 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 an industry that is that is that is broken and where prices and, and, and value is driven down by by yeah by companies like Facebook who try to save as you know to, to save as much money and, and make as much economy as they can um, uh, in this system. So you know outsourcing this to the to the cheapest part of the labor market that they can, um, and that that I think has takes a, a negative toll a on the quality of the of the human review itself, uh, but it also takes a human toll on the people who have to do this work. True, and so. If, if Facebook and other companies want to do human review, and they absolutely should um, invest a lot into human review, um, then they need to to do this right and you know pay people fairly. Um, and yes, that's going to cost money. But a company that makes billions every quarter in net profit, I think it shouldn't be a problem for them to to, to pay um, human reviewers better. Yes, and and not only the horrible conditions, but also to deal with the horrible part of the product itself, which is sometimes human nature. Uh, there are some harrowing testimonies of people that work in the centers and they see violence all day and they see things that are completely uh, you know out of the the norm and and people have to look look at this and, and and decide to take it off so sometimes computers do help they don't have those feelings that humans have to deal with people get traumatized now moving to uh, one of the uh wins let's call it that way that edry was able to um, make for us consumers and that is to have what you guys call the certified independent body that will manage complaints from users so before that or as it is right now people will complain but it's inside the machinery of the digital platform or the digital company to have someone that we can appeal to but still this system is not yet functioning as well as it should be tell us why yeah so it's true like at a we have we have advocated for a long time um, that uh, that the dsa should uh, introduce what we call well, independent dispute settlement bodies or out-of-court dispute settlement bodies, I think, is the official term that, term that the DSA now uses. And ob- I'm obviously very happy that, that the Commission has taken on this idea and they have really proposed this in, in the DSA. So the idea is that if you, are, if you disagree with a content moderation decision of, of your platform, uh, then you can, the first step that you always have to take is that you continue to complain to the platform. That's really a pity. I would have loved people to have the ability to go right away 
to the dispute settlement bodies. But the DSA says, first go to the platform. If the platform mm -hmm. upholds their decision and you're still unhappy, then you can go to the, to the independent out-of-court dispute settlement. Now, why is out-of-court necessary? We already have courts, right? Well, I think it's, 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 it's intuitive to realize that, uh, that, the, that the number of content moderation decisions that are taken every day and the, the kind of the type of decisions that this entails is not something that the traditional court system was built to, to, uh, to decide on. Um, even though they can, but the process is just too slow. And I think it's easy to see, you know, if you look at how many people um, would actually be willing to go to court and sue Facebook because of a, of a, of a post that was taken down or sue Twitter for a tweet that was taken down, um, they, they, I think there would be very few people who can afford to do this kind of stuff. That would be, you know, law professors, uh, politicians, people who are very privileged places, they can, they mm -hmm. can do that. Everybody else cannot. And that's why um, easy to access, cheap, uh, out of court dispute settlement bodies, which, are, which, which people can directly go to with a, without a lot of hassle. Um, I think this is really a big step towards giving people more power um, back into their hands when, when, it, when it comes to you know, their, them defending their rights vis-a-vis -vis, um, big platforms. Uh, and let's mm -hmm. and let's hope that people do use that system. Yeah. And again, course. like we're just saying a minute ago, people just don't give up on fighting for their rights. But sorry, you were going to say something. I interrupted. Yeah. No, you. I just wanted to add that none of these measures um, will take away from us the obligation and the pressure uh, to 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 think about why all these measures are actually necessary in the first place. Um, like, why did how did it happen that we outsource? the management of our public debate and our public space to a billion dollar global company um, and they kind of now have the power to decide what, what public debate looks like in which format it mm -hmm. happens about which topics it can and cannot happen and i think this is also the question that we should be asking it's not a question that the dsa directly addresses unfortunately but you know the dsa isn't decided yet so i think this still can happen but we are going to do it right now because this we're getting into the part where I was looking forward to talk with Jan because of my personal interest and personal note here as the host of the podcast, which is political debate on digital platforms. Um, one of the things that you guys also mentioned is the fact that there are now rules for online advertising. And I think this is great, particularly when it relates to political advertising who's paying for it, why am I seeing this, what was the mechanisms that this particular political publicity got to me. This is all very good. We need to know more information. Still, there is the question of what you guys call the toxic ad tech business. Go a little into that because this is important. It's a little technical, but I think it's uh, necessary for our, our listeners to know. Um, yes. So the, the toxic antic business um, is what we call, you know, is what we call the whole industry that is involved in the in, in the process when when you get shown advertisement on a platform or on any website, really, for that matter. Um, and uh, from, I think most people don't even realize the, you know, the big machinery that is going on behind. Um, but just to give to give a little kind of glimpse into it. So if if you go to any of, of the major websites that embed advertising today um, in the moment you open the website in the milliseconds that the website takes or you know depending on the speed of your device maybe a second that the website takes to load in the background the website is connected with uh, with the with you know 
different actors of the ad tech industry. And, and those actors, they basically, in that very moment, broadcast everything they know about you. So your, your whole digital profile to hundreds of different mm-hmm. parties who can then bet on who can show you advertisement. And the highest bidder gets access to that advertising space and then basically access to your eyeballs. So they're bidding on your eyeballs, on your attention in that very moment. It's really, it, it just takes a millisecond to do that process. And that happens hundreds of millions of times every day for everybody on the internet. And what's the, the weirdest thing about it is that that personal data, that your profile that is broadcasted all over the place is, is, is not protected at all. And so even though all those companies who don't win the bid and who don't get to show you advertising, they all keep the data, right? And they can do with it whatever, whatever they want in most cases. Um, I, I'm not a lawyer, so I can't tell you whether that is actually legal under GDPR. I would very much doubt so, but I, you know, it's, it's, I think that's something for the courts to figure out. Um, but, but this is happening all of the time. And so the, the process of, oh, you know, this is just a shoe ad that is shown to me, isn't actually that innocuous as, as it shows, as it seems. Um, it's it's a real it's a real in-depth process. And why why sure. is that business model a problem? Well, there are two big issues. One is the more traditional one, which is the data protection issue. Um, obviously, your data is shared without your consent or knowledge with people, with companies that you have never heard of, um, and that basically every time you visit a website. Um, I think that that's an obvious one, and that is something that GDPR and also the e-privacy regulation should have solved. Even though the enforcement of GDPR is so weak at the moment that I can't really you know, we can't really say that that has been solved. But there is a second problem, I think, which GDPR didn't tackle, which is um, there is there is a risk not only to you, to you as an individual in terms of you know, intrusion of your privacy, um, there is also a societal risk behind it. Um, and that is that we're basically giving anybody who pays for it the ability to push any content to any part of society that they wish for on platforms. And so Facebook is selling out a power to third parties, which not even Facebook should be having in the first place. And that is just, this is a power of manipulation on a, on a scale that, 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 that society has never seen. And it leads us to, then I will connect again to political debate. It leads to what is a problem, which is a shared reality. We should have the same facts. We can have different opinions. We can have different political solutions. That's fine. But we don't we can't work on a situation where people having a completely different perception of the world than other people because they're seeing different things page on their web page on their uh feed uh feed page so let's stay with this for a little bit jan because i think this is really important how can we fight apart from what we just mentioned until now but societally how can we fight this more and more creations of bubble or more digital platform is adding all kind of information that people like to see and then the re- the ad tech business reinforces that and then people don't only discuss things that they want to discuss they don't want to be faced with nothing that they don't like because then they will complain about it tell me how can we fix this broken system that we're building yeah, I mean, you're, you're, you're totally right. I mean, what you point at is, is a problem that is even a little bit bigger than just the ad tech business, which I just described. It's, it goes into whether or not the internet should be as personalized as it is right now. And if I mean personalized, I mean, I really mean 
as you say, down to the person. Every person sees the internet a little bit differently. And given how many people now use uh, you know, the big platforms as a major source of, of, of information in public debate and political debate, um, this really is a problem because how can you discuss um, with other people about an issue if you don't know what, what kind of arguments the other side has heard? Mm -hmm. You don't know in which reality the others live and what kind of things they see and hear every day um, and how that compares to what you see. And I think that what you call the, the lack of, of shared, uh, shared uh, common ground um, around what is what is true and what is not, what is happening out there. Um, I think that is a big problem in itself. Yes, um, I think one of the first steps that 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 regulation can do is try to to prevent some of the worst of these um, technologies that are out there targeting people. And I think the easiest to delineate is 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 the ad tech business model. So the idea that advertising and any other promoted so paid for content um, can be targeted to down to the person or down to a very small group of people. I think this is something that has no added value um, to people. It has definitely a huge risk of harm to society as a whole. Um, and I, you know, I, I think there is a lot of momentum at the moment in Brussels to consider phasing out this kind of, this kind of business model. That doesn't mean that advertisement goes away. It doesn't mean that uh, journalists can't can't pay for their for their journalism anymore, and that you know that the kind of sometimes Google claims that the business model of the internet goes away. No, it's not the business model of the internet. It's just Google's business model, and you know a couple of other big companies. Um, no, it's it's not against advertising. It's against the advertising that is capable of manipulating the public. Um, I think this this is the key point, and everything else can stay, of course. But um, but the DSA, what it should do is prohibiting the use of personal data for the purpose of showing advertising, um, profiling people, and then using that to promote content to them for money. This is something that really needs to go. And then in addition, we can talk about and should talk about more ability for users to, uh, to control what kind of uh, organic content they see, so content that isn't paid by anybody, so not technically speaking advertising, but content that is shown to them by a, an algorithm where Facebook or another platform thinks, uh, okay, this is what you know what that person is interested in seeing, and that's why, and that that's something that they aren't interested in seeing, and so we're not showing this to them. So this kind of kind of organic algorithms, this is something that we should also be looking at, um, and so people giving people more control over. Um, over what kind of content they see and what kind of content they don't see. I think that is the second step um, uh, that is very important here. But as, just as a reminder, again, many of these problems wouldn't be that grave and wouldn't be that acute if, if, if we weren't in a situation in which 3.5 3 billion people on the planet um, are sitting on the same centralized business platform uh, that's based on targeted advertising. Um, if, if, you know, if, if the internet looked more decentralized if the internet was was more diverse in terms of what kind of platforms and you know um, uh, rooms for debate exist then many of those problems would be far far less problematic this is great and unfortunately we're getting to the end of your time uh, with me but i'm going to ask you to please come back again but for now Tell us how can people get involved? How can people join this very important uh, fight to more freedoms, more uh, participation, more political debate on digital platforms? 
Yeah, that's, that's a really good question. I think as a first step, there is individual choices that people can make already today. Um, so if, you, if you're worried about the way that Twitter or Facebook works, try to, you know, try to look beyond um, uh, what these platforms offer and see what other offers are out there. At the moment, it's not so many, unfortunately, but maybe in the future, there are going, going to be more. You, know, you look at platforms such as Mastodon, who is a replacement for Twitter, which is uh, set up in a decentralized way. So it gives you much more control over what kind of stuff you see and what you don't see. It definitely doesn't collect data for showing you advertising. There is no advertising on Mastodon. Um, so, you know, this is, I think, kind of the individual steps. But the individual steps alone won't solve the thing. So we need political decisions to regulate that space. And, you know, as, you know, obviously, if, if people are, you know, happen to be politicians, then, you know, getting active on, on the regular, like, regulatory front uh, is, is always a good step. Reaching out to Idri to discuss those things uh, more in detail, um, that is definitely a good, uh, a good thing to do. Um, but for, you know, for, for regular folks like myself, um, I, I think it's, you know, if, if you want to get involved, uh, well, look out if there are digital rights organizations close to you in your country. Um, mm -hmm. Adria is a network of 44 member organizations. We have members in a lot of European countries. Um, so look out for them. Um, on the Adria website, you'll find a list of all our members. Um, many of them do work with volunteers. Um, and there is certainly something you can do. And the least you can do is definitely reach out to your elected representatives in the European Parliament or your, your national parliaments. Um, reach out to politicians. They're often happy to receive emails from you um, and, uh, and hear your concerns. Um, you know, that's what, why you vote for them. That's why they're there. Um, and don't be shy. I think that's, that's really important uh, for them as well to hear. I'm going to put all these links on the podcast description. I've been talking with Jan Penfrat from Edry. Jan, thank you so much. This was really, really illuminating and to be continued. Thank you. My pleasure. I'm back. Just a reminder that you can find this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher and Spotify. And if you like it, give us a five star review. In that way, you can help us spread even more liberal values and ideas. And now for some of the events organized by ELF for this end of March, beginning of April. On the 30th of March, based in Brussels, but it's going to be online, we have Multispeed Europe, Roundtable, Eurozone and Schengen Area. Looking at the current state of the EU, one cannot help but realize that we are living in a multi-speed Europe, starting from older ones like the area of freedom, security and justice, the Eurozone and the Schengen area, and looking at new ones in the form of PESCO, Frontex or the Banking Union. The EU member states already seem to be moving at different speeds, and this is not a bad thing. In this event, we're going to have two panels, one about the Eurozone and the other one about the Schengen area. To know more about this event, you just have to go to liberalforum.eu forward slash events. And this is all for now, but I'll be back soon with more podcasts. Until then, let's keep making the world a better place. The Liberal Europe podcast, it's organized by the European Liberal Forum with the support of Movimento Liberal Social in Portugal. This podcast is co-founded by the European Parliament, and the European Parliament is not responsible for the contents of this podcast or any news that may be made of it. The views expressed on this podcast do not necessarily reflect those of the European Parliament 
and or the European Liberal Forum.